Welcome to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. This is going to be the last M&A podcast in this series, and we will come full circle this time. Where at the beginning of this series, in episode two, I spoke to Jeff Rudnicki of McKinsey about the merits of programmatic dealmaking. In this episode, you will hear about this in practice. You'll still be able to access episode two, by the way, but I'll explain it here in brief. Programmatic dealmaking is doing lots of successive small to medium-sized acquisitions rather than occasional large deals or no deals at all. Jeff told us that it was demonstrated in a very wide-ranging study that the companies with this M&A strategy create more value than the ones following other strategies. I'm very pleased to have with me in the London studio, Donald Murphy, CEO of DCC, a FTSE 100 firm with diversified holding, including a large energy arm. I have a lot to ask Donald, as it's one thing to say that you have to do programmatic M&A, but quite another one to execute it flawlessly. Donald, welcome to the studio. Thanks very much, Hughes. It's wonderful to be here with you today. Now, Donald, I always ask people, what do you like about making deals? And I would definitely want to hear that from you. Yeah, lots of things. Hoos, I've been in the group now 26 years. Our business is, while organic growth is always our first priority, M&A is a very important part of our business model. And over our 29 years as a public company, we have acquired over 400 companies to create and build the group that we have today, which has operations across 22 countries. For me, you know, the key thing about deal making is finding the right opportunities, you know, being able to build relationships with the people that are selling the business and end up with a win-win situation where both parties are happy that they have found the right new home for the business. So uh, you already started explaining a bit about DCC and the tremendous amount of deals you've done to grow to the size that you are today. Tell me a bit more about what makes up DCC. Sure. It's a little bit of a complex group in ways. We are a diversified sales marketing and business support services group. We operate in three different sectors. Energy is our biggest sector, about 70% of our group, 15% within the healthcare sector and 15% within the technology sector. We've been public since 1994. We're listed on the FTSE uh, 100, as you say, 5.5 billion market cap, revenues of 22 billion operations in 22 countries with 16,500 people. And over our 29 years as a public company, we've grown our profitability year on year 14%. We have always delivered high returns on capital and we typically turn 100% of our profits into cash. So it's been a self-funding typically growth story over that 29 year period and key to that has been our M&A capability within the group. And that's also how we got to know each other of course. Precisely. So since you've grown so much through uh, acquisitions I'd like to go through the various steps in the acquisition process with you. So starting with strategy and how do you select the targets for growth? Sure and strategy is always an evolving thing so we have a very clear kind of macro strategy at a group level where we want to invest in businesses that are asset light, that are recurring revenue, that typically turn their profits into cash and that have very high returns on capital employed. So that's the very macro strategy. Then when you get down into our three sectors, we have very specific growth strategies for each of those sectors. And within those growth strategies, we align very clear acquisition criteria as to how we're going to build a business. And I think if you don't have very clear acquisition criteria, 
because you're in multiple sectors, you tend to get scattergunned in your approach to M&A. So the clearer and the more tightly balanced your M&A criteria are, the better in terms of being able to both identify the right deals, manage the pipeline, and then ultimately not waste time in looking at businesses that actually won't fit with your strategy. And that is something we work really hard on. It's got to be refined as the business strategy evolves. But I think that clarity of criteria is key. And if you get that right, then you can build the pipelines and then you can execute more deals. And if I look back relative to other parties, I think we end up with a much higher success rate from pipeline to execution than lots of other companies. And that goes to that criteria that we have in place. So what you're saying, your pipeline or your funnel is actually relatively narrow. You don't have to uh, scout so wide because it's difficult to get in the funnel. But once a target is in the funnel, you have a higher chance of uh, success. Precisely. And, and you know well whose M&A people love looking at lots of different opportunities and lots of things come across our desk and you can end up wasting a lot of time and investing a lot of time and cost in looking at businesses that ultimately my role is the final arbiter. I have to sign off on all the deals that we do. And, you know, a deal that comes to me that I won't sign off on is an incredible waste of time for all our teams. So, you know, getting that criteria tight is very important. And now the energy transition is playing a major role in your strategy as well, I understand. Yes. And, you know, we have built our energy businesses, and thanks to you, in many cases by buying lots of businesses from the integrated energy groups, you know, and then complementing those with small mom and pop type operations to build scale businesses, which was typically in fossil fuel. We're now really well positioned to help our customers, which are typically off the gas grid, to decarbonize, but we need the capability to do that. So we've been investing in solar businesses, we've been investing in energy management businesses, we've been investing in insulation businesses, so that we're building that capability to drive lower carbon solutions for our customers while leveraging the customer base that we have in each of those markets. And that's really a win-win situation because the entrepreneurs that have built those businesses not only do they get access to a very strong financially backed organization, but they get access to the customer base that we have and the credibility that we have as a multi-decade supplier to pretty much all our customers. Yeah. And then we get into the negotiation phase of the uh, acquisition. Is there something like a DCC negotiation style? I know what your personal uh, negotiation style is. I, I don't think there's a DCC negotiation style. I think we have, I suppose lots of us have grown up together and we learn from each other. And one of the key things in, in, in our organization is that learning culture. You know, whether you're in the team at the center or whether you're in the team at the divisions or indeed within our businesses, we've always tried to learn from each other and learn from the mistakes of the past. So I think the style is to be very open. It's to be very commercial. Enter into negotiations on the basis that we want a win-win situation in the end of the day. I'm not a favor of lose-win or win-lose, definitely not. So, you know, we go into all our negotiations to try and find that win-win situation. And I think if you embrace M&A on that basis, your success rate is a lot higher. And you have to fund all of that growth. How does that work in DCC? Yeah, again, going back to what I said earlier, who's the business has been predominantly self-funding. 
So by buying good businesses, growing your profits, turning those profits into cash, you know, we are that quality compounder. That is the business model of the group. So we want to sell funder acquisition. And when we went public in 1994, you know, we had probably revenues of a couple of hundred million pounds. Today, we've revenues of 22 billion pounds. And we have actually thrown off cash during that process by better managing working capital in the businesses that we've acquired. We've been a net issuer of equity of only 3.4%. So we've broadly self-funded the group and we have a very modest net debt to EBITDA ratio of about one times today. So we always have that capacity to move quickly from an M&A perspective. And I can remember a conversation with you on the biggest deal we did in our history back in 2015, where one of the key criteria from your perspective was no financing criteria that you wanted us to be able to finance from our cash resources and we had the cash resources so it meant we could take that first box and then there was many other boxes on the way uh, there were now with such a large amount of deals you're close to 10 this year again what kind of organization do you employ to actually make that all happen yeah so i kind of think about it on the two sides the origination and the execution so we again have you know a very devolved group so we have our origination devolved both into our divisions and into the bigger businesses within the group so they're the people that are closest to the partners that we will typically acquire businesses from so origination all about wearing your shoe letter knocking on doors Building the relationships, we do buy businesses through auctions, but our preference is always to get into bilateral conversations. So you and I met by knocking on Shell's door, you know, building that relationship over time. And then when there was assets that Shell was going to look to divest that were relevant to our group, we knew each other and we could start a good conversation, whether it was a process or indeed whether it was a bilateral conversation. So origination in the businesses. And then at the centre, we have a corporate finance function. And that corporate finance function is focused on making sure we're doing the right deals, that the structures are right. If we buy a business with an airnet, that the airnet structure is right, that the legal agreements are giving us as much protection as we can. So we balance that execution and control of deals with the origination capability within the businesses. And that has worked really well for us over many years. Okay, so let me try to summarize what I've heard so far. So I don't think we could have a better example of programmatic deal-making hearing from uh, DCC, a company that's grown through 400 acquisitions with a pretty narrow funnel because you're being very clear on your criteria before you start the project. A negotiation style that should focus on win-win, which probably makes it easier to have repeat deals as well then you can self-fund most of that growth and you've organized it such that origination is done throughout your organization, but there's a small team that helps with execution and where a lot of the learning sits. Absolutely. Now let's hear about George Pilko's company in a small advert. Remember, he was a special guest in the previous episode. Pilko & Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions, 
involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. Welcome back to the last of this series of M&A podcasts with guest Donald Murphy. I've gotten to know Donald when DCC bought a gas distribution business from Shell. And there's always a part in the first stage of a negotiation where you've got to get to know each other. That's quite difficult as you are already in a negotiation at the same time. Donald, it struck me that you were always calm and soft-spoken and very keen to make sure I understood DCC's strategy and drivers for the acquisition. You really invested time into that. Yeah. So, who's, you know, when I look and think back about our relationship, one of the, the most important things, and again, consistent with building relationships with others, is that you build that relationship, you establish that trust. And from day one, your style, your approach was very compatible with, I think, my style. You were very open. You told us right up front the things that really mattered to you and to Shell in any of the deals that we were discussing. And that openness and that ability then to be able to establish what was a win-win for us was very important. Your phone was always open to me. So when there was issues through a process, and there's always issues through a process with any of your team, I was able to pick up the phone. We were able to have a very open conversation and you would tell me no chance if it wasn't something that made sense or you'd be very open and say, well, yeah, look, we can look at that. We can take that on board. And that established a really trusting relationship that meant that any time we were doing or looking at a deal, I knew it wasn't a negotiating point. It was something if you said no, it was no. If you said maybe, well, it was a maybe. And definitely if you said yes, we could get something done. And that that is, I think, is key to deal making that you build those relationships. Uh, it makes me think that trust is the thing that allows you to distinguish, say, someone taking a position because it's a real thing or it is done for negotiation. And there's a place for both. But if you confuse the two, then actually it's difficult doing a deal. Absolutely. And I, I think too often in deal making, you know, people look for that win-lose. You know, the seller is trying to win on everything. And, you know, that's not a great result because if you're in that, then everything becomes negotiated. And I can remember numerous occasions where we have lost out in deals because I mistakenly assumed someone was telling me something and it was a pure negotiation when indeed, actually, they were being direct and upfront. And you kind of learn from those things, but you've also got to protect yourself and you've also tried to get the best deal you can possibly do. So you've got that balance all the time. So again, I think writing down the criteria that really matters, too much time is spent negotiating things that don't make a tangible difference in a deal. I found that time and time again. Experience brings that. And then sometimes, you know, you can go and be, I suppose, the arbitrar. One tiny example, I remember getting a call from one of my colleagues who was trying to do a deal up in Scandinavia and he rang me in total frustration saying, I'm spending more time negotiating with my own colleagues than I am with the other party because they were so focused on 
points that didn't make a material difference to the deal. So I had to come in and intervene a little bit and make sure we focused on the material points. Okay, so uh, we were following the deal-making process. So now having done the acquisition, uh, I'd like to speak a bit about integration. Um, So how do you make sure that the company is going to be successful under DCC's wings? Yeah, again, I think this is so, so important for businesses and, you know, people often say and, and you know quote it a number of times in your previous podcasts, you know, percentages of deals that haven't worked, that haven't really created value. And when I think about that, I don't think it's about buying the wrong business. I think it's about the integration process. And that starts pre-acquisition. And for us, the most important part of our due diligence is always making sure that we have a management team that can grow and develop the business unless we're fully integrating it into an existing operation and that that management team shared the same values that we have as an organization. So if you bring in a team of people that have a very different culture, a very different set of values, you know, that's going to be a problem. And you've got to get that right up front. We will not buy a business if we don't believe we have the right leadership within that business. You know, you've got to be upfront with the business because we're a PLC and fortunately or unfortunately with a PLC, there's lots of governance, there's lots of reporting requirements, there's lots of regulation that probably don't impact on some of the smaller businesses that we acquire. So, you know, we've got to be upfront and tell them that's part of being a PLC. I think if you don't do that, it becomes a negative surprise afterwards, which is an issue for the business. And then you've got to very quickly integrate the business into your operating models. Now, there's two types of acquisition. There's a platform business in a new geography or moving into a new area where you're not integrating it into another business. So that's not a bolt on. In which case, I think we've been poor enough sometimes at really telling the businesses and helping the businesses to adapt to the PLC environment because you say, well, I'm not integrating it, so I don't need to do much. But there's an awful lot of change on the team in coming into an environment or indeed coming into the shell environment or any other large corporate. On the other hand, you know, where you're fully integrating a business, while it's much more challenging because there's lots of change required and lots of change management to do, it's actually easier in ways to embrace the change into the business because it's just part of a very structured managed program. And that's something we've spent an awful lot of time on over the years because we've bought lots of businesses. We learn from the mistakes. We build that into our program. So the next time we don't do that and the next time and the next time. So I think people and then fast integration and honesty up front in terms of the implications on the business. And should it happen that a new acquisition does not meet the expectation? Yeah, you know, we don't get everything right. And we've, as I said, we've we've completed over 400 acquisitions. Someone asked me yesterday, actually, at an equity conference, what's our strike rate? And I think our strike rate is in the high 90s. So typically we do get it right. But we've bought some businesses that we haven't got right. I think there's a couple of things, you know, you've got to do. Uh, You've got to analyze the why. Is it we've just bought a bad business and it's not going to change or we won't be able to evolve it. And I think if that is the case, you should deal with that pretty quickly and, you know, find the right owner for the business. Invariably, that's not the case. Invariably, it is 
you need to adapt and change the business. And again, you've got to do that quickly. What we do as an organization is two years after every acquisition, we do a full deep dive on it with the management team take out the investment proposal, look at the performance versus the investment proposal. There'll always be changes. There's always changes. But even if it's performing well and there's areas where we haven't succeeded in our value creation proposition, then we revisit and we look at that and say, well, should we be doing more or should we be happy uh, with where it is? Every three years for acquisitions that we bring to the PLC board, we bring it back to the PLC board, warts and all, very open. And we say, this is how it's performed. Here's where we've succeeded. Here's where we need to improve. And it's all about the learning, you know, and bringing that learning back to the next deal. That's great. Now, you would be a great person to advise a seller on what to do or what not to do when they set up a process because you've seen own painful experience what works and what doesn't so what would be your kind of yeah, it's of fun, advice it's funny when you when you ask that question who say i remember back many years ago to a dinner post a deal with a very entrepreneurial family business that we acquired and the MD of the business described uh, me as the smiling assassin uh, because he said well you're you're very nice you're very open but like you were able to get the result that you wanted to get. And I think for me, over the years, I think it just comes back to this bit of being very clear up front and our relationship, our discussion. 2015, when we were looking at the Budagast deal, you laid out very clearly the criteria that you wanted. And it wasn't for negotiation. These are the points. And we were able to work with that. And I remember very clearly the conversation when you said, well, if you deliver on this and there's no change or no material change, so long as the due diligence stacks up from your perspective, then we'll do this deal. And I think that's what sellers should do. I think people should very clearly outline the non-negotiables, not 50,000 of them, you know, the key things and say, these are the non-negotiables. And then as the buyer, you've got to sign up to that and say, I understand you know, and where we sell businesses, we do that. Some people don't believe you and they'll come in and say, and then all you got to say is say, well, we're not moving forward because that has been my key principles. And I think if a seller did that, that really helps. I think there's a lot of time where sellers hide behind advisors. I don't believe in that. I believe in principle to principle negotiations. I think you want to be dealing with the person that can make the decisions. And there's games get played. And and sometimes the games get played with advisors and advisors are very important. I always recommend to particularly smaller entrepreneurial businesses to get an advisor because it's much easier when they're getting advice from a third party than trying to take the advice from us. But the important bit, I think, is be upfront, negotiate face to face with the principals and focus on success and that win win. Excellent. So, Donald, leadership is an important aspect of deal making. And as a deal leader, uh, you need to oversee the whole deal process and create the collaboration across the different disciplines. But you've gone on to become a CEO of DCC. So can you say what things of leadership in deal making have actually been useful for your position now as a CEO? Yeah, probably lots of things in ways, because ultimately, as I said earlier, M&A is a key part of our growth agenda. So having had the experience 
in doing the deals. Ultimately, I've got to sign off on every deal now. You know, you bring that experience and you don't fight over the little things or the immaterial things. You look at the bigger picture. And I think that is very important. I think deal making teaches you you've got to be agile. You've got to be flexible. You've got to think holistically about the whole opportunity. And I think when you're running a business and indeed a large business, that's very important. And the world is changing at a pace now. Adaptability is so, so important in all of our business lives that we have to adapt to new circumstances. You know, the last few years, you know, dealing with a pandemic, dealing with the macro environment, you've got to be flexible. And to get deals done, you've got to have that flexibility. You've got to have that agility. You've got to work hard because there's, and as a serial deal maker, and one of my pet hates in deals is everyone leaves everything to the last minute. So this thing of working through the night to get a deal done is mad. But if you're a serial deal maker and you've lots of things going on at the same time, you won't be sleeping if you keep following that platform. And again, I think that teaches you a discipline in terms of how you manage in on a day-to-day basis. So I think deal makers, growing businesses through M&A is hugely important to anyone leading a large organization. Well, thank you, Donald. Thank you for your words today. And thank you for the friendship that we built through doing deals. Thank you. It's been a wonderful journey over many years. And uh, the one thing I've learned in business as well, friendship lasts beyond the deal and uh, that's something that uh, that you and I have established so thank you for all your support yes we've had a great time and I really appreciate being together again today and that was the end of the 10th episode and this season of the M&A podcast I've covered many aspects of M&A through many different lenses and heard from senior executives bankers accountants lawyers negotiators consultants and professors And I'm very grateful to all of them, as together we've built an audience that keeps coming back. I hope this series will serve as a useful way to get both a great introduction if you haven't been exposed to much M&A in the past, or as a useful brush-up if you have been in the profession for longer. I sure have learned, and that's exactly what I like about deals myself. You never stop learning, and as each new deal offers something different, and it offers a new challenge. Thank you for the feedback after last episode with many of you saying that we should continue next season. Any feedback that you feel that I can use to make these podcasts even more useful is very welcome and you can leave that on pilco.com or on my LinkedIn page. Goodbye.